Hello, and welcome to Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News Illinois. I'm Peter Hancock. As part of our series focusing on this year's election candidates, we turn our attention to the Illinois Supreme Court and the race in the third judicial district. There are five judicial districts in Illinois from which appellate court and Supreme Court justices are chosen. The first district, which is Cook County, chooses three Supreme Court justices. The other four districts choose one each. State lawmakers just redrew the district boundaries for the first time in many years. The third district now includes DuPage, Will, Kankakee, Iroquois, Grundy, LaSalle, and Bureau counties. Incumbent Justice Michael J. Burke, a Republican, was appointed to the court in 2020 to fill a vacancy in another district, but he now finds himself in the third, seeking a full 10-year term on the bench. He faces Democratic challenger, 3rd District Appellate Court Justice Mary Kay O'Brien. My colleague Jerry Nowicki and I spoke by phone with Justice Burke about the role of the Supreme Court and how he would approach the job if he is given a full term. Here now is that conversation. So we'll just give you the opportunity to start us off with your pitch uh, for voters uh, for a full term on the court and uh, a little bit about your experience in law and on the bench. Sure. Um, well, thank you for the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, I think the, the most important thing when it comes to picking a candidate, um, uh, the person you want to sit on the highest court in the state of Illinois, it really boils down to experience. Um, and I clearly have uh, the experience uh, over that of my opponent. Um, I've been a judge. I'm not a politician. I've never been a politician. Uh, I've been a judge for 30 years. I served at every level of the state judiciary. I've been an associate judge circuit court judge, an appellate court justice, and now for the last two and a half years I've sat on the Illinois Supreme Court. Uh, I started out my career as a prosecutor in DuPage County. I worked there for about nine years, worked up the ladder um, to become felony trial supervisor and then the chief of the Special Prosecutions Bureau. Um, you know, tried you know, hundreds of cases to verdict uh, in my time in the office. <clears throat> and then in March of 1992, when I was 33 years old, I was appointed to the bench as an associate judge. Uh, and as an associate and circuit court judge, I, I sat on the uh, circuit court of DuPage County for 16 years, uh, hearing mostly criminal felony cases during that time period. I uh, moved on to the appellate court in 2008 when I was appointed by the Supreme Court uh, to sit on the appellate court, sat on that court for 12 years, and uh, two of those years I was the presiding justice of our district appellate court. And then in March of 2020, when Justice Bob Thomas decided to retire, the Supreme Court unanimously appointed me to sit uh, on the Illinois Supreme Court. And again, I've been doing that job now for the last two and a half years. Um, you know, I bring um, judicial experience, leadership, uh, integrity, and independence to the office. Um, and, and that's why I'm asking for the support of the voters to, uh, to allow me to remain uh, on the court. Uh, and my promise, the only promise that I will make, you know, really is that uh, I will continue to do my very best if I'm blessed uh, to uh, you know, have a 10-year term on the court. So I'll, I'll start with something that um, plays very prominently on your website, and that's your ratings with the Illinois State Bar Association. They're very high. You're voted highly recommended compared to just recommended for your opponent. opponent. 
So what does that say about your temperament and how does that process work in, in terms of you getting that, getting those scores? Well, you know, the, the, the people who rate us um, from the Bar Association, uh, the Illinois State Bar Association, those are the lawyers who appear in front of us and have appeared in front of us, you know, over the last, you know, for me, three decades. Um, so they've seen me in action. They've had cases in front of me. Many of those lawyers have won their cases and many of them have lost their cases. Um, but I think what it says is, is that they recognize that I'm fair, uh, that I know the law, uh, that I have good judicial temperament, um, you know, that I will listen to their arguments. Uh, you know, I don't come into anything with a preconceived idea. You know, I've ruled for, you know, various, you know, groups for the police against the police, for, you know, criminal defendants against criminal defendants, businesses, you know, the same way. It, it's really just a matter of every case is different, and that's part of my judicial philosophy is every case I pick up is, is different. It has to be decided based upon the facts and the law of that case. So I'm extremely proud of the ratings, this rating. And then I've been rated by the Bar Association every time I, you know, I, it was up for election or retention. This is my third judicial election, and I've been up for retention a number of times uh, and always received uh, some of the highest bar ratings. Um, and, again, I'm very, very proud of those bar ratings and, and, and very blessed for the opportunity to serve. Uh, Justice Burke, this is Peter Hancock. Uh, I don't think we've met, but I've seen you on TV. Uh, one of the uh, things about this, this election is that Republicans have a chance to uh, take control of the Supreme Court for the first time in probably more than 50 years. Uh, wondering if you could talk about how would the court be different or would the court be different under a Republican majority, and do you think partisanship matters at the judicial level? You know, partisanship should never matter in the judicial level. Um, I don't think much will change on the court. I think what people point to are, you know, certain opinions that have come down in the past before I was on the court along party lines, uh, like the redistricting uh, issue that was up before the court. I think it was in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and that came down, you know, uh, where, where the um, referendum that was uh, proposed to, to have a different way of, of redistricting um, was, was uh, struck down by the uh, Supreme Court, uh, was not allowed to be put on the ballot, I should say, by the Supreme Court along party lines. So people point to those, those um, I think, somewhat at times isolated incidents and say that, that the court is partisan. The vast majority of the things we do really have nothing to do with partisan politics. Um, you know, I, I like to say that our, our robes aren't red and they're not blue, they're black. We all wear the same color robes. And really, we, we look at things with different perspectives. I mean, you know, someone who comes in, I guess, with a Republican, conservative-type perspective may look at something a little differently than someone who comes in with maybe more of a liberal perspective. I guess that's something that, that's to be considered. Um, but generally, we should really be deciding these cases uh, based upon the facts and the law. And then the other half of what we do on the Supreme Court is not just decide cases, which certainly is very important, but we also are the administrators of the entire court system for the state of Illinois. And, and when we're making those decisions, too, they should not be based on, on partisan philosophies. Um, you know, that's why I pride myself on being an independent judge uh, and, and always have been. Um, so. I guess that's my answer to the question. There are certain cases that have come down on party lines, you know, before I got there. Um, but those cases are few and far between. And the way I look at it, 
uh, is not as a Republican and not as a Democrat or not as a partisan. I look at it as, as a judge. So you, you mentioned there um, that depending on, you know, your, your views, whether conservative or liberal, might um, influence the way you think about things. So is there a characterization for your judicial philosophy that, that you give? Sure. I, I mean, my, my judicial philosophy, well, part of it I've already said, and that is each case is separate and each case is different. Uh, I am a constitutionalist. I believe, you know, in, in the words in the Constitution uh, mean what they say. Um, you know, but there are a lot of times when we have um, issues come up, whether it's the, under the Constitution and trying to interpret that Constitution in light of a particular set of facts or statute, um, you know, I'm a textualist when it comes to that, meaning I look at the words, and if I can glean the intent of the drafters of the Constitution or the intent of the legislature in, in um, enacting a statute, then I give that, you know, I have to give that uh, full effect, um, you know, because we're not, we're not legislators. So that's part of my judicial philosophy from, I, I don't know if you would call that a conservative viewpoint, maybe some, some people would, is that I do not legislate from the bench, never have. Um, you know, people elect the legislators to do their job. They elect judges to do our job. Um, you know, I believe, as I said in the Constitution, part of the Constitution is a separation of powers. Now, we are called upon to interpret statutes from time to time. Um, you know, as I said, and interpret constitutional provisions from time to time. Um, but you know, the making of the laws is, should be left to the legislature. So on the, on the topic of the Congress, uh, Constitution, um, and I'm not going to ask you for any of your uh, uh, views on this case, but um, we've sort of observed you as, as a person who, who asks a lot of questions and, and isn't afraid of a strongly worded dissent. And, and one of the cases that comes to mind is the People versus Vivian Brown re, uh, regarding the Floyd Law's constitutionality. Yes. And I don't want to get at um, the, the the court in that case decided not to rule on the constitutionality, and, and you you strongly disagreed with that. Um, so I, I, I kind of just want to get at what goes through your mind um, when the rest of the court you think has decided so wrongly in such a situation, like as you contemplate that dissent and, and sort of uh, what goes through your mind there. Well, what goes through my mind is, is you know, as I'm drafting a dissent, um, you know, I want to get my position out there, what I b firmly believe in. Um, you know, strongly, I, I, I do, you know, I'm trying to make my position forcefully, and the, re the reason is because, well, I, I believe what I'm writing, number one. But also, you know, you are trying to write for other members of the court who are going to read that dissent and may come and join you, and that does happen from time to time. Um, so, you know, you're writing for... You're the audience of the people of the state of Illinois, but you're also writing for the audience of the, the judges who, who are thinking the other way, at least at that point in time. So uh, that's one of the things that, that goes into it. I, I mean, my, word, my, my dissents are strongly worded, um, but I ho hope that they're also, um, you know, they're, they're fair, and I try to also show great respect for my colleagues and not, not ever engage in any type of ad hominem attacks against fellow justices because I, I respect all the judges on the court so much. So, um, you know, that's what goes through your mind is, is you, you, re, you think that what's, what has been proposed by the majority is wrong. You want to state as strongly as you, word, you know, worded as you possibly can uh, as to why it's wrong. 
And then, like I said, you're also trying to perhaps uh, sway some of the people from the majority over to your side. Uh, this is Peter Hancock again. Uh, wanted to ask you something about uh, a talk that you gave at the University of Illinois uh, Law School in Champaign-Urbana. Uh, told the students there that you were appointed, you came onto the bench in early 2020, and one of the very first things you had to do was to co-sign an order shutting down the court system uh, right. and suspending the speedy trial requirements. Uh, with the benefit of hindsight, looking back, do you think that was necessary? Uh, do you think uh, it maybe was an overreaction? or what, what are your thoughts on that? It's a tricky question because, you know, as you can imagine, we, we suspended the speedy trial, people's speedy trial rights, which, you know, I will tell you, we did not take lightly, you know, um, that was a very difficult decision. Um, but, you know, and, and the, pro the problem I have answering this question right now in fully uh, is that we now have um, cases that are in the pipeline challenging that, you know, people who were sat in jail over the 120 days after they demanded trial, you know, for statutory speedy trial rights. And, you know, they were kept past the 120 days, of course, because of COVID, and they didn't get to their trials until, until later. Um, and they are challenging that, um, you know, that the, the court's authority to do that. So um, I don't really want to comment on that to give any opinion as to how, you know, even intimate as to how I might rule on these cases that are in the pipeline. Um, all I can tell you is that it was a very difficult time for the court. Um, you know, it's something that I, I hope the voters consider as part of my experience, um, you know, uh, being on the court at a, a time of crisis and being one of seven justices to see the court through that time of crisis. Um, and we came out the other side, and I will tell you there really isn't, wasn't a significant backlog in the vast majority of the, the circuits in the state based upon the things that we did especially remote proceedings, you know, and, and getting some of these rural counties, um, the technology to, to do remote proceedings. So, um, but it was, it was a, certainly a monumental decision to shut down the court system. I mean, we shut it down, but of course we kept, had to keep it open for, for um, emergency matters, such as orders of protection and temporary restraining orders and, you know, juvenile detention hearings and all those bond, you know, bond calls. Um, so we made sure that the, the emergency matters had to be heard, and then we slowly got the, the system back on track safely. You know, we, we slowly reinstituted jury trials with distancing and, and uh, you know, masking and all that. So, um, you know, again, it was a, it was a time of crisis. Um, we've weathered that storm. Um, the speedy trial issue will be decided by the court sometime in the future as to whether or not we actually have the authority to do what we did. Um, after full argument by uh, by the attorneys. And one of the other things you mentioned to the law students there was that a short while later, in the wake of the George Floyd murder, uh, the court put out a pretty extraordinary statement about its commitment to equality and equity uh, and announced that you would be hiring a chief diversity and inclusion officer. I believe you've done that now. Uh, just sort of wondering, how's that worked out? Has it made a difference, do you think? Well, we, we, we were one of the first court systems to actually hire a diversity um, and inclusion officer. Uh, her name is Deanie Brown. 
Um, she's a wonderful person and doing a great job. I mean, one of the things that we, we recognized early on when she came on board is, you know, we need data collection. We, we need to know where we're at right now when it comes to those issues, both, both within our system, you know, within the administrative office, the Illinois courts, people we hire within the system, people we appoint as judges, you know, all the people within the system, and then also how we treat those people coming into the system looking for justice. Um, so we are in the process. We engaged with um, Southern Illinois University. They have a, um, a group there that, you know, will, will help us try and gather data um, in order to guide us in the future in this. But I know she's doing a lot of work with um, within the court system, um, you know, doing uh, focus groups and, and think, you know, again, trying to find out where we are within the court system um, and then how we can get data both in the court system and, and from outside the court system. And it's an ongoing process. And, and I'm, I'm just a big believer that, you know, if, if we as, institu as an institution um, or we as individual judges are afraid to take a look at ourselves and a look at take a look at you know how we're doing things then then we're we're being misguided you know we we have to always be open to looking at our system looking at how we do things individually to make sure we're being as fair uh, as possible to everybody who appears before us so um, you know I think she it's working out well um, but it it is a work in progress. Okay, so um, I wonder about your experience when you look back at such a long judicial experience. Are, are there things in your mind, uh, decisions in your mind that stick out as particularly challenging or anything, uh, any decision where you look back and think you made a mistake? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, the, the appellate court has told me when I was on the trial court that I made mistakes, and the Supreme Court told me uh, when I was on the appellate court that I made mistakes. So. I think you could look up those, uh, you know, those times. Um, you know, I will tell you that I, nothing stands out where I, I, I wish I had made a different decision because I will tell you at the time I, you know, I'll read a, an opinion that reverses me and it didn't, I mean, not like it happened all the time, but it happened um, where it reversed me. And sometimes I, I say, I, I can see where the reviewing court was coming from. And then sometimes I just totally disagree with the reviewing court's analysis. But I will tell you, every decision I've made, you know, I've, I've tried to think it through, tried to make the best decision I possibly can um, without, you know, any bias or interest, um, you know, and really try and engage in what we call deliberative decision making in the process. Um, so, you know, that's how I can sleep at night. I just try and do the best that I possibly can. So nothing stands out um, as far as, as that. Um, you know, I will tell you the things that stand out in, in my career, a lot of the things that stand out um, came from my experience. I sat in juvenile court for about four years. And, um, and then, of course, all of my criminal court experience, mostly hearing felony cases, um, cases involving children, those are the ones that, uh, that definitely stand out. Um, and you just, you know, hope and pray that, that everything worked out for all those kids, you know. So, um, a group called All for Justice has released a TV ad uh, claiming that you and fellow judicial candidate Mark Curran want to born, uh, ban all abortions in Illinois, even in cases of rape or incest. I, I, I know you can't, well, and there's been other ads as well, but 
I know you can't really say how you'd rule in any given circumstances, but how do you respond to that ad, one? And then two, um, do you take issue at all being sort of grouped in with a person like Sheriff Curran on, on something like that? Well, how I respond to that is, is very simply by saying that, that the positions that have been ascribed to me by both my opponent in her actual ads and by uh, these special interest groups are, are, are fabrications. That's how I respond to that because there has never been anywhere, you know, being a sitting judge, I'm always circumspect in what I say um, I, in public, uh, what I write, if I write an article. Um, I have never once expressed an opinion on all the things that they say. I mean, if you look at the things that they're saying that, that uh, you know, I don't, as you mentioned, I don't believe in a rape or incest exception. I mean, the one ad that's been put out and circulated that I believe that a 10-year-old rape victim should carry a child to term, um, that women should be put in jail if they have an abortion. That's on one of those things. Um, never have I ever said that. Never have I ever written that. Never have I ever intimated that. And, they, and, and neither my opponent nor those groups can source any aspect of me saying anything like that. Um, so that's how I respond to it is, um, you know, I've never said those things. My positions on those things um, are my, you know, my personal positions have always remained personal to me. Um, and, and they don't affect how I work, work as a judge. So I, I do take issue. I take great issue with that. Um, I think, to be honest with you, that, you know, I understand, I understand partisan politics gets nasty. I understand that. But when two people are running for the highest judicial office in the state of Illinois, I do believe that the citizens of the state expect better from us, and I think they deserve better than, than just this kind of mudslinging based upon fabrications. Um, as far as Mark Curran goes, you know, uh, Mark Curran was a candidate for office um, for the Senate, I know, um, and he ran, of course, for sheriff many times. So um, running for executive office, uh, is, is different than running for judicial office. You can state your positions freely. Uh, apparently he has stated his positions freely. Um, his positions are not my positions because I didn't state those positions. So I guess if you're trying to lump me in with him, or they are, um, based upon the statements he's made, that's unfair because I've never made those statements. Um, so, but I understand that he made them in a different context. And now my understanding from the things I've heard is that you know on the campaign trail for this office, he's not making those statements. At least that's my understanding. But you know I'm not following his campaign like some people would. Um, so, I mean that's that's my response to that. Well, and one of the reasons why abortion uh, I think has become an election issue is that in recent years, as it started looking more and more likely that the U.S. Supreme Court would overturn Roe v.ersus Wade as it has now, uh, a lot of people started focusing the fight on state courts and looking to state constitutions. Uh, and so there's some concern about that. Uh, I did notice that the Chicago Sun-Times reported uh, that you attended an Illinois Right to Life banquet earlier this year and that you were once a member of the DuPage County St. Thomas More Society. Um, and just wondering if you can talk about that and if you can understand why some people think uh, your impartiality might be a bit compromised there. Oh, absolutely. I'll, yeah, certainly. Uh, first of all, as, as it relates to the St. Thomas More Society, you know, the, the, 
that the, the uh, Planned Parenthood flyer that went out said that I'm a, I'm a member of the St. Thomas More Society that has filed a lawsuit challenging the uh, Illinois Reproductive Rights Act, or Reproductive Health Act uh, from 2019. Um, that is, a again, a fabrication. Um, I was a founding member of a group called the DuPage County St. Thomas More Society of Catholic Lawyers. The group was formed for one purpose, and that was to put on a red mass um, for the attorneys and judges in DuPage County, a, a yearly red mass, like they have in Chicago every year that everybody attends. Uh, we wanted to put one on in DuPage County, and, and we formed that group in order to do that. And we did put on a red mass for, I don't know, maybe five years or so, and then the group kind of fizzled and we don't have the red mass anymore. But it, that group is in no way related to the St. Thomas More uh, Society, um, you know, uh, law group from Chicago that, that um, it's a public interest law firm, basically. So I can't be a member of a law firm and be a judge for the last 30 years. So uh, that's, a, that's an actual law firm that has filed in whatever suits they filed. So I want to clear that misconception up. Um, and yeah, I, I attended the, you know, this last year's um, uh, Right to Life dinner uh, in April. Um, you know, it was certainly the middle of primary season and there were over a thousand Republican voters there. Um, but yeah, no, I, I understand why people could say, oh, he attended Right to Life dinner, therefore, um, you know, his position on, on um, this issue is staunchly pro-life, I guess. Um, but we are allowed um, under the ju judicial canons of ethics to attend nonprofit dinners and events, um, and as long as we do not publicly uh, support in any way the platforms of those groups. So I've never publicly supported the platforms of any group, including the group that put on that dinner. Um, the only thing I can point to is a 30-year track record of being fair and impartial, a 30-year track record of not legislating from the bench, um, it, you know, in order to assure the voters that, that I would be fair on those issues. Uh, you know, the Dobbs case, as you mentioned, did send the case, send the issue, it overturned Roe, but it sent the issue back to the state legislatures, not necessarily the state courts. Now, I understand state courts will look at laws from time to time, um, you know, and determine whether they're constitutional, whether they're valid, how they're to be applied to a particular set of facts. Uh, I understand that. But, but the state legislature actually has the, the task of making laws as it relates to abortion. We've seen it in surrounding states. They've taken a different approach. In Illinois, the legislature in 2019 passed a law uh, giving uh, women the fundamental statutory right to have an abortion uh, under that law. So uh, that's the law in the state of Illinois right now. Um, and again, I, I, I haven't publicly stated my position on that, and I have a 30-year track record of being fair and impartial as you've in indicated before, shown by my bar ratings, shown by the endorsements that I've received from, you know, all these different groups that, that have endorsed me. So, um, you know, I, that, that, I, and I understand it's a concern for people because I, I went to that dinner. I certainly understand that. So I wonder, um, one thing we've been asking is uh, endorsements in election like these, any, any number of groups that have endorsed you could end up having a case before the Supreme Court. How do you, what kind of wall do you have there? How do you separate uh, yourself as a candidate versus your, yourself as a judge when it comes to your uh, people who've endorsed you? 
Well, anybody that when I go to, to a group to, you know, present perhaps to seek an endorsement and things of that nature, I, I always tell them that, you know, I'm seeking their endorsement, but their endorsement in no way will affect how I, how I rule on cases. You know, for instance, the Illinois Chamber of Commerce has endorsed me. Um, you know, I, I've been on reviewing courts now for, what, almost 15 years. Um, and, and if the chamber did a deep dive into my, you know, case, cases that I've sat on or that I've written um, involving business interests, they'd find cases where I've, you know, ruled for businesses, and they'll, they'll find cases that I ruled against businesses and, and against the business interests. So uh, it, it doesn't affect me at all. I mean, I'd love to have their endorsements because hopefully they're telling the public that they think I'm fair, um, not that they think I'm going to rule for instance, for business interests in every case that occurs before us. And, and that's the way I've done my job for 30 years. Uh, this is my third judicial race. You know, I've been endorsed in the past in the last two, and it doesn't affect how I, how I rule on cases. So due to, due to redistricting, your, uh, this is judicial redistricting, you're in the interesting position of running as an incumbent in a, in a seat that you weren't Appointed to, if I'm correct on that. So you're 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 filling a seat vacated by Thomas Kilbride, the first justice in Illinois, to lose his uh, retention election. What does that retention election say about the court uh, and maybe the broader political climate um, when a justice isn't getting retention? Well, it, it, yeah, the redistricting, um, you know, I live in DuPage County, and they redistricted DuPage, which was in the second district, to the third. So now I'm, I'm actually, you're right, I'm, I'm the, the appointed justice in the second district, um, and but I'm seeking the seat in the third district. Uh, yeah, uh, in 2020, Thomas Kilbride was not retained. Um, I, I, don't know, I don't know if that says anything in particular about the judiciary. Um, I think it, what it talks to is, or what it speaks to is the, you know, the, the political firestorm that surrounds these elections at times, um, you know, and I'm a big believer in the independence of the judiciary, um, and we should be held to, held to, to strict scrutiny from the public, um, and that's why we have retention races. Um, I'm just not a big fan of special interest groups getting involved uh, as, as deeply as, as they have been. I mean, if you look at my, my opponent's um, you know, she, she's receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars from, um, you know, the, the Democratic Party, um, trial lawyers, uh, the uh, labor uh, interests. Uh, I mean, Governor Pritzker the other day dropped half a million dollars into her account. Um, you know, that that type of money being involved in these races, um, I, I think it, it – brings into question in the public's mind the independence of the judiciary, and I don't think that's a good thing. You know, there are, on that subject, there are some groups who, uh, nationally, who are just philosophically opposed to the idea of having an elected judiciary. Uh, do you think it, Illinois would be better off if it went to some, of, some other form of uh, selecting judges? Well, I, I think Illinois should really take a long, hard look at how we do select judges, um, and should 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 uh, investigate all the possible options. But let me let me just say this from my personal perspective, and this is only my personal perspective. Um, I I like the idea of the public electing us and and, and retaining us. Um, 
because I mean, I look back on some of the, a lot of the states have governors who appoint and, you know, I, I don't know if that would be a good system for us to have the governor appointing the entire judiciary uh, whenever there's an opening. Um, so I, I like the idea of us presenting our credentials to the public and making a case, you know, for, for our, us to be elected. But I do believe in order to really uh, prioritize judicial independence, we should run nonpartisan. Um, and I also think that there should be some, some controls on spending, whether it's taxpayer-funded elections or just some campaign finance limits or, or what. I, I don't know. I mean, we'd have to – I don't want to, you know, go off half-baked here, uh, you know, with a definitive solution to this. But I do think it's something that we really should take a long, hard look at in Illinois. So I, I wonder um... – you had mentioned you were appointed the last couple of years of Justice Thomas's term upon his retirement. We've seen a lot of that, Democrats and Republicans on the judge. What do you make of that practice, and do you think it gives you a, a unfair leg up to have a justice sort of retire and, and then choose their successor as an incumbent for the next election? Well, I mean, you know, the choice of, of an incumbent, the person choosing the person, certainly the, the, the person who leaves, um, you know, nominate someone, um, and and but the rest of the court has to approve of it. The rest of the court has to vote on it. And, you know, the bipartisan. So if it's a Democrat who's, you know, for instance, uh, Justice Burke just announced, Chief Justice Burke just announced her retirement. She presented Joy Cunningham to us as a possibility, uh, Justice Cunningham, and um, and and we looked at you know her resume and we discussed it and uh, and we all voted in favor of Justice Cunningham, who is a you know has served on the court with distinction for years. So, um, yeah, I mean, does it give someone a leg up? Sure, I'm, I'm sure it does. Um, but I don't know if that's necessarily, a, a, you know, something reason to, to throw, throw out that policy. I don't know what the, what the policy would be if a judge wanted to retire. Um, we have to have an election. We do have to stand for election in the next election cycle. So, um, you know, I, I'm trying to think of what, what the solution could be to that if we did away with that policy or that uh, practice, I should say. Um, I don't know. All right. Peter, do you have any other questions? No, I think that's uh, about all I have. All right, Justice Burke. Well, we sure. really appreciate your time. Um, anything else you have you want to want to say before we go? No, I just really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, gentlemen. Um, and uh, you know, like I said, I'm. You know, hopefully, I'll be uh, you know be able to keep this seat uh, for a ten-year term. That's what I'm. That's what I'm looking forward to. And you know, just uh, I got a, a a blessed career of public service. I just like to you know maintain, keep keep serving the public. That's all I want to do. All right. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. All right. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. That was Illinois Supreme Court Justice Michael J. Burke. You can find our conversation with his Democratic challenger, Mary Kay O'Brien, at the same place you found this podcast. Until next time, this is Peter Hancock saying thank you for listening.